Welcome to this episode of Sound Bites, a podcast series produced by the National Psoriasis Foundation, the nation's leading organization for individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In each episode, someone who lives with psoriatic disease, a loved one, or an expert will share insights with you on living well. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. My name is Corinne Pettit, and I'm here today with Dr. Philip Meese, a rheumatologist who's the director of the Rheumatology Clinical Research Division at Swedish Medical Center, Providence St. Joseph Health, a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Washington School of Medicine, and has a clinical practice at Seattle Rheumatology Associates. Dr. Meese is an internationally recognized researcher and educator on the disease states and the treatment of rheumatic disorders. He is a past president and founding organizer of the Group of Research and Assessment of Psoriasis and Psoriatic Arthritis, also known as GRAPA. He also is the scientific director of the PSA and Spondyloarthritis arm of the Corona Rheumatic Disease Registry. He is the co-chair of the PSA Task Force of the National Psoriasis Foundation. Also, Dr. Meese has been active in the Outcome Measures in Rheumatology Clinical Trials, or OMERACT, research organizations as co-chair of the PSA and chronic pain working groups. Dr. Meese served on the voting panel of the ACR MPF PSA Treatment Guidelines Project. Our discussion today will focus on the new psoriatic arthritis treatment guidelines released by the American College of Rheumatology and the National Psoriasis Foundation on November 30th, 2018. Welcome, Dr. Meese. Thanks so much for being on SoundBites today. Thank you, Corrine. I'm happy to be here. Great. Well, before we dive into the questions and the meat of the guidelines, I think it's important for our listeners to know the development process. So what led to the development of these guidelines and who was involved in the process? It is very customary for various organizations to develop treatment guidelines or recommendations for various diseases. For example, the ACR has previously developed treatment guidelines for rheumatoid arthritis. In this particular exercise, the ACR teamed up with the National Psoriasis Foundation uh, and brought together both rheumatologists and dermatologists, as well as patients, physical therapists, uh, a methodologist, uh, to uh, serve on a variety of committees uh, that were uh, focused on developing uh, the guidelines. These committees were separated into literature review group. We called them the librarians of the group. and They did an extensive and in-depth uh, literature review of all of the treatments uh, and the studies around those treatments that had been developed for psoriatic arthritis. Also, there was an expert panel that consisted of rheumatologists and dermatologists. There was a voting panel that included rheumatologists, dermatologists, and methodologists. And in all of these, there was a patient group uh, that was involved in vetting uh, the treatment recommendations. So it was a very broad uh, and very in-depth process and unique uh, in that it brought the two organizations, the American College of Rheumatology and the National Psoriasis Foundation together. Great. So it sounds like a lot went into it. Yes. And so how long did this whole process take? It took well over two years. Uh, it uh, launched uh, back in uh, the summer of 2016 and 
and the various uh, participants in the exercise uh, uh, gathered together over the course of that fall uh, and then uh, got to work in earnest after that. I should mention, by the way, that all of these um, participants were participating on a volunteer basis. So what is the overall goal or purpose of the guidelines? The purpose of treatment guidelines are to help clinicians guide them in relation to choosing therapies. Uh, And so uh, it's often difficult, especially with a complex disease like psoriatic arthritis, uh, which has multiple different types of manifestations, arthritis, enthesitis, dactylitis, spondylitis, psoriasis and nail disease. So many different parts of the body may be involved. I actually say to patients that I'm treating, you are not like any other patient with psoriatic arthritis because everybody is so unique in how they present. So given all of that, uh, it's sometimes difficult for physicians to make rational choices about what therapies to use because the therapies may work differently in different parts of the disease, like the arthritis on the one hand or the skin disease on the other. The other factor is that many uh, busy clinicians don't have the time to read all the background literature, all the studies that go into approval of medications. And so this is a way of distilling and condensing a lot of information and putting it in front of the physician in a relatively easy to digest uh, algorithm uh, for treatment. And we know that psoriasis is similar to psoriatic arthritis and that it can be different in each person. Are there any similarities between the new psoriatic arthritis treatment guidelines and the treat-to-target guidelines that are specifically for psoriasis? The concept of treat-to-target first arose in illnesses such as diabetes, uh, where we know that if we uh, quantitate the disease uh, and try to get to a state of remission or low disease activity, that the patient does better in the long run. We also have learned this in the case of rheumatoid arthritis. So there are similar goals with psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis. And the the commonality between all of these is to try to quantify the disease by accurate measurement and then to uh, establish a threshold whereby a patient is considered to be in either remission, meaning no disease activity that's manifest, or low disease activity, where they may have minimal symptoms but can function just fine. Uh, And so that's generally the goal. Uh, And uh, I would say that that's where the similarity is between psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis treatment guidelines. However, the differences, obviously, are that uh, the psoriatic arthritis treatment guidelines are going to uh, be broader in that they have to touch on arthritis, spine disease, uh, enthesitis, which means inflammation where tendons insert into bone, uh, and dactylitis, uh, as well as taking into account the specific comorbidities that may coexist with psoriatic arthritis. Uh, It's a bit more complex, uh, but nonetheless, our goal is the same, getting to remission or low disease activity. And why is optimal disease management and getting to that target level so critical to treating psoriatic arthritis? If we don't get a patient into remission or low disease activity, then there are a number of consequences for them. 
One is that there may be more progressive structural damage to joints. Two, they may have more trouble with physical function and functioning in their normal work roles, their family roles. And so it's really important, we feel, not only to prevent damage to joints, but also to have the person maintain a fully functional lifestyle uh, that we think it's important uh, to try to achieve these goals. A further point uh, that we're beginning to understand better as, as we learn more about these diseases is that some of the comorbidities, including cardiovascular disease, uh, which may be increased because of underlying inflammation, uh, leading to increased atherosclerosis of blood vessels in the heart or the brain, uh, that by treating effectively inflammation, we may reduce the downwind consequences of cardiovascular disease. And that's important. It really is a full-body disease. Yes, Well, can you walk us through the high points of the new guidelines? I've heard there's a change regarding the use of methotrexate as a first-line treatment. Why the change? So you've hit upon uh, one of the key points that comes out of uh, this set of guidelines, and that is uh, the group recommended use of a TNF inhibitor uh, before uh, use of an oral disease-modifying drug such as methotrexate. And this simply had to do with the fact that the evidence uh, for efficacy uh, was so strong uh, with the TNF inhibitors compared to the data uh, with methotrexate uh, and other oral disease-modifying drugs. And so uh, in order to achieve the best outcomes, uh, the group felt that it was most prudent to start uh, with the TNF inhibitor uh, when treating a patient naive uh, to a disease-modifying drug. Now, of course, there are certain caveats. For example, if the patient has uh, a, a disease such as multiple sclerosis, which is a contraindication to using a TNF inhibitor, or uh, if uh, they have very mild disease activity and it might respond well to methotrexate, Uh, or uh, if the patient has a strong preference uh, for an oral medication uh, such as methotrexate, then those would be, of course, woven in uh, to the decision-making process. And I should say at this point that one uh, key point from the exercise was that virtually all of our recommendations were conditional. What does that mean? That means that Uh, we really didn't have head-to-head studies for comparison. So we didn't have a study, for example, that took a group of patients naive to methotrexate and then um, compared a group treated with methotrexate versus a group with TNF inhibitors. And that was true for most of the other medication classes that were studied. Uh, And so uh, instead of making a strong recommendation based on a head-to-head trial where you clearly had one drug working better than another. These were all um, based on what we call network meta-analysis, where the we did an estimate of a comparison uh, between, say, the TNF inhibitors and methotrexate, and found based on that estimate that the TNF inhibitors work better and the safety profile was very similar. Uh, and so that's why uh, that recommendation came out as it did. 
This is somewhat similar uh, to the GRAPA treatment recommendations, where uh, in, in the GRAPA treatment recommendations, uh, what the way that is done is that we evaluate the evidence for efficacy of uh, various drug classes uh, in each of the key clinical domains of psoriatic arthritis, such as arthritis or enthesitis, uh, and then ask the question, is this drug effective? Is it not effective? And then we uh, put the group of drugs that are shown to be effective, say in a patient naive to other treatments, uh, in uh, as a group. And so the physician can choose from uh, the different uh, categories of drugs. Whereas in the ACR-NPF process, there was a more serious attempt to really try to gauge what drug class works better than another and to clearly state that. And this is called the GRADE uh, process, uh, which was uh, strictly adhered to in the, uh, in the ACR-NPF guidelines. And so for our listeners, our patients that are currently on methotrexate, should they be scheduling an appointment with their doctor or to talk more about this? That's a good question. My advice is that if the patient is doing well uh, on methotrexate uh, and if they are not showing signs of progressive structural damage, which the clinician can assess by doing periodic x-rays, for example, or by doing a technique known as ultrasound, uh, and especially if the patient is not having adverse effects from methotrexate, I don't perceive a reason to change. Uh, However, if the patient is not doing well, uh, or if there's evidence of structural damage progression, then I think it's uh, highly worth the conversation. Wonderful. Uh, What other recommendations were announced in the guidelines? Well, there are a a number uh, to uh, mention. Uh, As you know, there are a number of different classes of medications that have been now approved for the treatment of psoriatic arthritis, uh, not just TNF inhibitors, uh, but also uh, IL-17 inhibitors, IL-1223 inhibitors, a drug known as Abatacept, a a JAK inhibitor, uh, tofacitinib, a a PDE4 inhibitor uh, known as Primalast, So there's a wonderful group of choices that we have in front of us. And so uh, much of the document uh, is one wherein either in patients that are naive uh, to treatment or uh, are further along the path, say they have failed a previous drug such as methotrexate or they failed a drug such as TNF inhibitors, then there is a um, set of choices that are presented to the clinician and where to place drugs uh, such as the IL-17 class or the IL-1223 class or Primalast or Tovacitinib and so forth. Also, the document highlights uh, the specific treatments for the unique uh, clinical domains of psoriatic arthritis. For example, what's the best treatment algorithm for enthesitis? Or what's the best treatment algorithm if the patient has spine disease? Or what about the patient who has certain comorbidities, uh, such as um, evidence of liver toxicity, or uh, the patient who has diabetes, or the patient who has uh, recurrent serious infections? So all of these different situations are addressed uh, through a set of answers to what we call PICO questions, 
uh, uh, wherein we were faced with choices of which drug to choose in which circumstance. One I'll point out, for example, is sometimes a person with psoriatic arthritis may have inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, and so there's a caution uh, about use of IL-17 inhibitors in that particular patient group. So that's an example of something that's called out uh, in the document. Great. I also heard the recommendations addressed smoking. Could you speak to that a little? So there is, interestingly, uh, in one section of the document, a, uh, a strong recommendation to encourage patients not to smoke. Uh, and this is actually based simply on the uh, awareness and knowledge that there are many, 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 many studies that show that smoking is bad for you, just for your health in general. And so there is a strong recommendation to encourage patients uh, not to smoke. Great. Always good advice, I think. Yes. (laughs) And uh, what are the implications of these new PSA treatment guidelines for patients and providers? Well, I think there are going to be a number of uh, possible implications. One of them is going to be uh, that in the conversation between the patient and physician, wherein they're presenting evidence for various treatment options and recommending various treatment options, this may help patients who have some form of fear about uh, going on a TNF inhibitor. They may think that going on a shot or an infusion sounds like a big deal, uh, and they're very worried about what they may have heard about on TV or from a neighbor or something like that about the potential safety issues uh, with the TNF inhibitors. I think if they can see that this document actually recommends the the person start with this this group of medications that may help assuage their fears, and that may then help the conversation between the physician and the patient. Uh, if the physician sees that they have serious, aggressive psoriatic arthritis in terms of uh, recommending a, a TNF inhibitor. So that would be uh, one example. Another example is that uh, it encourages the physician to think about all of the different domains of psoriatic arthritis. So because the recommendations address not only treatment of arthritis, but also skin disease, emphysitis, dactylitis, spine disease, it uh, makes the uh, physician say, oh, I need to ask about these different clinical domains and then address them if they're active. Uh, And in, in many busy rheumatology practices, it's possible that the rheumatologist may only very quickly ask about joints and then leave it at that and not address issues going on with the skin or the spine, for example. So I think uh, broadening uh, the uh, physician's conceptualization about the disease is important. So I I would hope that clinicians would read uh, the recommendations uh, and um, absorb them as best they can uh, and then uh, think about them as they're uh, interacting with their patients. And so this is uh, it, so affecting uh, treatments in a rational and evidence-based way is really the key point of having such a set of recommendations. And are there any challenges that you foresee in implementing these guidelines? Uh, I know that insurance coverage could possibly be something that could come up. Well, that's an obvious 
issue, and, and um, there are many uh, insurance companies that have step-through procedures wherein a physician needs to demonstrate that their patient has already tried methotrexate before they will approve a, a more expensive biologic medication. And so I think what will happen is that uh, as these recommendations become absorbed into clinical practice, uh, as they're reviewed by formulary managers who are the ones that make decisions about uh, treatment pathways in, a, uh, in an insurance company protocol, uh, then they will be having to make some decisions. Uh, do we stick with this idea of making patients step through methotrexate before they can get to a biologic medication, or is this going to push us toward relaxing that requirement to a certain extent? And, and, I, and of course, cost will come into the discussion because methotrexate is very inexpensive and biologics are more expensive. But I also think... Uh, that insurance company managers will need to be thinking about what are the downwind consequences for patients and what are the positives uh, for getting patients into remission and is that going to lead to a lowering of overall healthcare cost as a result of that. So these are the complex set of equations that will need to be thought about. There's a lot to be seen. Well, on the same topic of in the future, uh, earlier you mentioned there's a lack of uh, head-to-head comparative trials. Uh, What do you see as the next evolution of the treatment guidelines? Well, the first comment is that we're seeing more and more uh, studies of newer medications coming along uh, in the psoriatic arthritis arena. Uh, Just at the last ACR meeting, for example, there were uh, presentations on uh, new Jack Janus kinase inhibitors of uh, beyond uh, tofacitinib. There are others that have names like filgotinib, panacitinib, and other not easily pronounceable names <laughs> uh, that uh, are showing efficacy uh, in psoriatic arthritis. So, so those drugs will be moving through the pipeline and coming to be considered for approval by the various regulatory agencies. Uh, so that's for sure. We're also uh, going to see results of some upcoming head-to-head trials. I'm aware of at least two uh, uh, head-to-head trials between uh, interleukin-17 inhibitors, uh, one of them ixekizumab, the other secukinumab, uh, and adalimumab. Uh, so uh, it will be very interesting to see the results of those studies, and if they show superiority of one drug over another, uh, either in the whole disease or in certain aspects of the disease, then this uh, can potentially influence uh, uh, changes in the guidelines when uh, the guidelines are revised. So periodically, every few years, you take a set of guidelines and you ask the question, is there new efficacy data? Are there new drugs? Is there new safety data? Uh, And we need to weave this into revisions of the recommendations. And so I suspect that that will come in the future. Great. So it's always evolving. Something to keep our eyes open for. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Meese, for taking time to be on Soundbites today. Your discussion was very helpful in gaining insight into the development and use of new treatment guidelines for PSA and will be helpful for many patients and providers. Uh, For those of you who would like additional information about the new PSA treatment guidelines, please look for announcements and upcoming webcasts this winter. Thank you, Dr. Meese. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us in a couple weeks for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Sound Bites on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, visit psoriasis.org or contact our Patient Navigation Center at 1-800-723-9166 or email education at psoriasis.org.